And we're going to jump right into this last session. Next week, we'll be heading back to the Gospel of John, and we're going to spend the spring in the Gospel of John, which I'm really excited about. There's, there's really no better place for us to be than just looking at the life of Jesus as told by John, his biographer. So this is it. We're going to conclude this series, Practicing Presence. It's been a five-fold series where we've covered presence of God, presence in community. Today is practicing presence in the city, and we want to open this by exploring what we believe is most needed for ourselves and in the world, and that is literally God's presence. The vaccine is important. The, the social unrest settling down is important, but what we need as individuals and what the world needs more than anything is a renewed sense of God's presence. And so we're going to start where we began this series in Exodus chapter 33. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can open to Exodus chapter 33. In that section of scripture, Moses, he's having this very honest dialogue with God. God had called Moses to lead the people into the nation of, uh, or into the promised land. And Moses was asking God, God, who's going to go with me? Who's going to help me to lead these people? And at the center of this dialogue, in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 33, Moses just cries out to God and tells him his greatest fear. He essentially says, verse 15, Exodus 33, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses knew there was no point in going forward in life at all unless God's presence was with him and unless God's presence was with God's people. For us, this year as a church plant, this is everything for us. This is everything that we need. The hunger, the pursuit, the longing for, the dependence upon as individuals, as community groups, as a church, at work, at school, in our families, in our wherever we find ourselves. With Moses, we're making it our prayer. God, unless your presence goes with me today, unless your presence goes with us this week, unless your presence is upon us and working through us, we don't want to go. We don't want to do our life without you. And then Moses gets at why this presence is so important in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 33. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses' primary concern was that without God's presence, God's people would not look any different than the pagan nations surrounding them. How was anyone going to be able to long for the goodness of God if they didn't see the goodness of God coming upon God's people? Worded another way, how would the lost people who did not believe in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, how would those who were worshiping false gods, how would they come to know the true and living God if God's people weren't marked by God's presence. This was Moses' primary concern, and this is the foundation for understanding how God's mission unfolds through us to the world around us. His presence, the indwelling Holy Spirit, distinguishes us as different from the rest of the world. We are to be, and should be, and can be, a people of complete joy in a world of depression because God's presence fills us with a sense of forgiveness and mercy and grace. 
God's presence, when he is near, when we are aware, when we are attuned and conscious of his goodness and trusting in his presence, it fills God's people with a peace in a society that's just filled with panic and anxiety. His presence can fill us with a sense of security in these very uncertain times. His presence, when he is with us, working through us and upon us, results in radical obedience while the world continues to rebel. And so God's presence in us, through us, upon us, with us, results in all of these fruits that distinguish us as different from the world around us and make our lives attractive because, in essence, the Christian should be marked by what every other human wants. Joy, peace, security, purpose, obedience. This is what God's presence brings about in us as we walk with him. Now, as we walk through the Bible, which that's what we're about to do, as we walk through the Bible, we see that God's presence with his people is in the midst of the unbelieving people, and God's presence was the hallmark of how he wanted to invite humans into his kingdom. What we're going to do is we're going to do a brief biblical theology, starting in Exodus, and we're just going to walk through where God's presence was, and we're going to land in the book of Acts. Everybody ready? Everybody ready to rock and roll? All right, here we go. From Moses' prayer right here in Exodus chapter 3, the nation of Israel goes on and they travel into the wilderness. God's presence goes with them in the form of the tabernacle, the tabernacle. When the people set up camp, they would set up camp by their tribes, which interestingly enough, if you measure out how they set up their camps by the numbers, they camped in the form of a cross. Just a little Bible trivia tidbit for you. (laughs) And at the center of their camp, imagine all these tents set up like this, Thousands of people camped. At the center of that was the tabernacle. This was the physical location of God's presence. Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy tell us that a pillar of cloud filled the temple, hovered over, excuse me, the tabernacle, hovered over the tabernacle. And by night, it was like a pillar of fire that came over this tabernacle. It was the distinguishing presence of God in the center of God's people. Where God's presence was, The people were. When the pillar would lift, the people would follow the pillar of cloud. When the pillar would settle, the people would set up camp. And so God's presence is what led them and made them different. And it also was drawing the attention of all the watching nations to the glory of God. But here's an important piece. There was a limit to how close God's people could come to God's presence. Exodus 40, verse 35. I'm going to be just spitting off a lot of verses here. Exodus 40, verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So picture this. The glory of the Lord comes at the, at the end of Exodus, fills the tabernacle, distinguishing presence of God, but Moses can't go all the way into the tabernacle. There's still some sort of separation because sacrifices would have to be made to purify God's people. Sin separates us from God, and so sacrifices would have to be made to bring God's people close in purity to God's presence. And that, my friends, is what the entire book of Leviticus is all about. Leviticus is this entire book about the sacrificial system that would make a way for God's people to be purified and made clean to come back directly into God's presence. And even then, though, you need to understand throughout the Old Testament, the only person that could come directly into the direct presence of God in the tabernacle was Moses and the high priest. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, as a representative of all the people. So there was still separation. There was still not a fullness There was still not a level of intimacy that God's people longed for and that God himself wanted. 
Now, as the generations passed by, they went into the promised land and they took over the promised land and the tabernacle was replaced with the actual temple, the gigantic temple. And in similar fashion, we're told that this pillar, this glory, this fire fell upon the temple in the promised land. The chronicler tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Exact same language as Exodus chapter 40. Moses couldn't go in. There was something keeping a fullness from happening. And then the priests, the glory comes upon the temple and the priests can't go fully in because once again, there had to be these sacrifices. And so in the Old Testament, tabernacle, temple, we see that the presence was upon them and with them, but there was a limit to how close God's people could draw. There was still a separation between them. And only sacrificial systems through the book of Leviticus and only the high priest going in as a representative could bring God's presence into proximity of God's people, but not fully. Is everybody tracking with that big picture? All right, stay with me. This is important. Even though God's presence, there was still separation there, all the nations... All the nations, all the people that were worshiping all the different gods throughout Asia Minor, throughout Israel, throughout the Promised Land, they all knew that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, dwelt in the midst of his people as they watched the tabernacle, as they watched the temple. They were distinguished. They were different. And through faith in those sacrifices, they continued to remain close to him. As the centuries moved forward through captivities and releases of the Israelite people, The temple was destroyed and rebuilt, and all through that time, the prophets, over and over and over, they would be promising God's people. There is a time coming where one day God's presence will be upon the earth in full, and all humans will get to experience God's presence fully and completely. No more separation. No more sacrifices. No more almost there, swing and a miss. None of that. With the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, a whole new form of God's presence began to mark God's people. Yahweh who dwelt in the temple, Yahweh who created all the world, a trillion suns, the waves crashing on the shores of the sea, the highest peaks of Everest, that God enfleshed himself, embodied himself. God's actual presence came into the midst of humanity in human form. John tells us in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. That word dwelt that John uses, it's literally, it can be literally translated, God's glory tented among us. God's glory tabernacled, it templed among us. And so God's presence may have been close in the days of the physical tabernacle and temple, but now God's presence could be touched and listened to, seen and felt via human touch in Jesus. And as Jesus, the embodied presence of God amongst humans, as he worked his works and preached his words, he made all these promises throughout his teaching ministry. He said that he would baptize all people in God's presence, in fire, literally, Jesus said, through the Holy Spirit. Remember the fire falling on the temple, the tabernacle. He said his followers need only to ask the good Father, and the good Father would give them the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, 
and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. You have to understand, for the listeners who heard Jesus speak these words for the first time, they would have been like, what? Wait, hold on. For millennia, the presence of God upon the tabernacle, but only by sacrifice can the high priest go into the tabernacle and represent the people. And now this itinerant preacher from Nazareth claims to be God among us. Has he lost his mind? And not only that, he's making this promise that if we will ask God's fire, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire by night, God's presence, God's glory will not only be upon us, but in us, in us, We have to let that sink in. As long as the sacrifices were made and the high priest was representing the people, God could be there, but it was incomplete. So what God did is he wrapped himself in in human flesh, and he became the ultimate sacrifice for all of humanity to make all humanity clean. Jesus became the final sacrifice of Leviticus, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus became our high priest, the one and true high priest, representing us in the holy places before God's actual presence. And it is his sacrifice that brings us close. Not our works, not our effort, not our moral standards, not our religion. Jesus Christ's death on the cross, his, his sacrifice in our place. As we trust him, having died in our place, we are cleansed as the nation of Israel was cleansed. We are made pure. We are brought into God's presence. And this is the most insane part of the New Testament teaching in my entire reckoning. (laughs) After Jesus' death, there was 120 of his followers. And they were all huddled in this little tiny room, and they were praying. They did not know what to do. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2, suddenly, Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, pillars of fire, cloud, and smoke. Remember these stories. Tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the pillar of cloud and fire that had been upon the tabernacle and the temple millennia ago came upon Jesus' followers, literally upon them. His sacrifice had made this forever way into the presence of God and for his presence now to indwell us. And what the New Testament teaches is there's no longer a tabernacle in the world that the world looks on and says, oh, that's God's people and they're distinguished by that tabernacle. Oh, there's the temple in the promised land. That's God's people and they have all their religious beliefs and they have all their sacrificial system. And yeah, we watch that and we acknowledge that they're distinguished. Now, now because Jesus' followers have been cleansed by his sacrifice, the indwelling presence of God is us. We are, the church is, you and I as individuals and as a community, we are the new tabernacle. We are like little mobile temples of God's presence in the world, kind of like God's Holy Spirit food trucks. Like you don't have to go to the restaurant anymore to get food. It's like you go to the food truck and then the food truck can drive to you. We are like little Holy Spirit food trucks. Is that sacrilegious? That does not sound like, that's not in my notes, everybody. That was not holy. We are distinguished from the world. You and I You're different. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are different because God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. God's presence 
dwells in you. You are a living, breathing temple. And so wherever you go, God's literal presence enters into that space in a unique way. At work tomorrow, stuck in traffic, sitting in Zoom, at coffee with a friend, wherever we go, we are carrying the distinct presence of God, and you need to begin to realize you are a thin space between heaven and earth. You are where heaven and earth meet because God indwells you. This is the foundation for practicing God's presence in our city. This, this background, this big background is what helps us understand what it means to practice God's presence as missionary people, as sent ones into our city here in San Diego. The last words that Jesus spoke to us as his followers before he ascended and was seated at the right hand of his father in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, are essentially a command to go and make disciples. And instead of them having to go to the temple to learn about God and be in God's presence, Jesus sent us into the world as the mediators of God's presence, as little mini food truck temples, to go and draw them into God's presence in their workplaces, in their classrooms, in their neighborhoods. Listen to these words from Jesus with that temple imagery in your mind. You being a mini temple. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, our English translation doesn't catch some of what's going on here in the Greek tensing, but essentially Jesus was saying, not when you go, not if you go, but as you're going, as you're going, when you wake up in the morning and you go to make your coffee, you are making disciples because you are a mini temple, a mini food trunk of, food truck of God's presence. As you go to get your coffee from the barista, as you go into your classroom, as you're going into work, you are making disciples by default because you are a thin space between heaven and earth, distinguished by God's indwelling reality, obedience to him, the overflow of that indwelling reality. So with that big, 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 big picture idea, many temples, thin space between heaven and earth, Wherever we go and whenever we are going, we are in the process of making disciples because God's presence dwells in us. Let's do three concrete ways for the rest of this year that we can think about being God's presence in this city as a church. Good? For you note takers, number one, intentionality is key. Intentionality is key for us this year. I can't emphasize enough as a church plant how important it is that we get on our knees and pray and become so intentional about very specifically with boldness and courage moving into our city, making as many invites and connections as we possibly can. It's crucial. It's what God has commissioned us to. Do you guys, does anybody know who Don Wessler is? Just anybody know who Don Wessler is? Oh, good. Okay. Don Wessler invented the ATM machines. ATMs where you stick in the little card and it magically spits out money. I love those things. 
ATM machines. Don Wessler created and, and invented the ATM machines. One day he's standing in line in the early 60s uh, watching the bank tellers do what bank tellers do, and he thought to himself, hey, we could automate this by a machine. It would be so simple. And bada bing, bada boom, you have ATMs all around the globe. But you guys want to hear something so interesting. His wife, Eleanor, all through... They were created in the 60s. She's now passed. But all through, even into her 80s, she never once used an ATM machine, ever. Not even once. The wife of the inventor of the ATM machines never used an ATM machine. And she said there was two reasons for this. She said she could just never get past the thought that that thing was going to take her card and never give it back. And so she just couldn't get herself to do it. And then in one interview, she said that uh, she just, she, she actually did not want to miss face-to-face connection with humans. The idea of going and having a human interaction with a machine, she just couldn't do it. In one interview, she said, look, you can't tell a machine on a, on a Monday afternoon that their eyes look so beautiful. You can't go, you can't go and, and take in the, the smile of another human when you're just staring at a machine. And I love being filled up with people's smiles. <laughs> that, my friends, is intentionality. That is sacrificial intentionality. Now, she wasn't using ATMs because she was afraid she was going to lose her card, but she was like, I want intentional human interaction. As little mini mobile temples, we need to realize and have this intentionality about our face-to-face interactions every time we meet with somebody, talk to somebody. You guys, Just the power of knowing our mailman's name is eternal. Just the power and the beauty of going to the, intentionally going to the same barista every single day and knowing their name and asking how they're doing and getting their life story. And honestly, a perk from that is every time I go now to Communal South Park, I get free coffee because they're like, hey, Pastor Dan, what's up? It's awesome. (laughs) Intentionality. Always being in these rhythms of of thinking through, I am now the presence of God coming into this person's life, praying for and getting to know the same bank teller, wait in line for the same bank teller over days, weeks, months, years, and eventually that becomes somebody that you love and know in some fashion, and you are the thin space for them between heaven and earth. To practice presence in our city is to make disciples and be intentional about everywhere we're going and every place, that, every interaction that we have. And I want you guys to remember this. This is so important. People are not programs. They are not programs. We're not looking to just get somebody into a relationship with them so that we can give some canned presentation that's going to make everybody feel awkward unless, unless the canned presentation they're open to and they want to hear it. Those things can be so effective in the context of a relationship where you're not just working some program like a robot, but you're actually looking at a human being and like Don Wessler's wife, Eleanor, saying, gosh, your smile is just amazing today. I love you. I love you. Church, do you love your baristas? Do you love your bank teller? As the temple of God, we are required to know less. The sacrifice has been made for them. God's love sacrificed his son for them. And we carry that love in our hearts to every person we interact with. Intentionality 
is not as hard as we think it is. All we need to do is see what's right in front of us. I think sometimes as Christians, we tap out on the mission and evangelism of God that God calls us to because we just get overwhelmed with how hard it is, how secular it is. Nobody believes. They're going to think that I'm, that if I say I'm a Christian, they're going to put me into this pigeonhole. Fine. Maybe that is the case. But the reality is, Paul said this, if we'll just see what's right in front of us, we are God's handiwork. Ephesians chapter 2, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The works are there. They are prepared. There is something this afternoon as God's mobile mini temple that has been prepared for you, for us together to do. The question is, do we love like Jesus loves us? Are we aware of that intentionality? Do you guys know where the term, just trivia day for you guys today. Do you guys know where the term neighbor comes from? Neighbor? It's this old English word. And it literally means the boar who is nay. The boar who is nay. Not boar like boring, B-O-R-E, but B-O-O-R. And nay, not like a horse nays, but nay. It's an old English term for near, nigh. Draw nigh, come near. So your nay boar, a boar, B-O-O-R in Old English, was a farmer. Your neighbor was the farmer who was nearest to you. So we intentionally love our neighbors. That is, our family, our friends, our co-workers, the folks in our literal neighborhood, and yes, even the enemies of our lives, the ones who irritate us and demean us and frustrate us and mistreat us. One final thing on this intentionality piece. Think of it this way. If you were gone from your neighborhood, your classroom, if you were gone from your workplace, would anybody miss you and why? Intentionality asks that question and then lives it in reverse. It lives that question in reverse. How can I leave such a mark, such a presence, such a memory that if I don't show up to the coffee shop on that day, the baristas at Communal in South Park are going, oh, where's Dan? He's not here for his oat milk latte with a splash of vanilla in it. Where, where? If I don't show up in my neighborhood, if we're gone for weeks on end, Dijon and Mary and Oliver and Eileen, David and his family, Griff and Judy, Jenny across the street, do they go, hey, where'd that family go? They were so loud and now it's so quiet. (laughs) Are you missed? Are you intentionally being such a presence, a thin space? And if you are missed or if, If you are missed, what are you missed for? For your smile, for your joy, for your peace, for the kind words, for the servant-heartedness, for the work ethic, all to the glory of Jesus? Number two, hospitality is the bridge. If intentionality is the key, hospitality is the bridge. Sociologists and historians still scratch their heads when they look at what happened to the Roman Empire, and this is why. In the span of three centuries, and this is unheard of in human history, in the span of 300 years, which is really short, in 300 years, this marginalized minority group of kind of fringe religious fanatics, practitioners of the way of Jesus, they were actually first called Christians, which was a derogatory term. Those little Christians, which literally meant, look at those little Christs out there running around. This little fringe marginalized group of fanatics, fanatical believers that believed this Jewish peasant had been capitally punished by the empire of Rome and raised from the dead, weird, 
that tiny little group of people within 300 years had turned the Roman Empire upside down on its head. The most powerful empire in world history and this little fanatical group of people over 300 years so shaped and changed and infiltrated and saturated the culture of that empire that the, the, the tectonic plates shifted and moved and changed. And sociologists and historians are like, how did that happen? Do you guys want to know how that happened? In their homes. They opened their homes. They had dinner. They took in the orphans. They took in the foster kids. They took in the hurting. They took in the strangers. They said, come, you who are outcast and marginalized and unseen, we Christians, practitioners of the way, Little Jesuses will take you into our home. We'll feed you. We'll care for you. We'll watch out for you. We'll practice the presence of our God in your midst in our home. These people were so oppressed and misunderstood. They didn't have great power like we've had here in the United States in their culture. They didn't have huge event centers with thousands of seats and gigantic budgets. Of course I wish we had that. I would love if we had that. But what they had was they had their homes and they opened their homes. As vaccines come forth, as we get back to this year prayerfully, some semblance of a new normal, please consider your home as a place where God's kingdom breaks forth into the world. Please consider your home as a place where people can and should be invited into the presence of God and the kingdom of heaven. Guys, this is why we press community groups so hard every single week. Community group is not just a time for us to get together and be vulnerable and care for one another. That's very important. We do that. But community groups are a primary place in this culture where secular people, those who have no exposure to the church, those that would never, ever, you can invite them a thousand times over to come to a Sunday morning and listen to some guy yap in a microphone, and they're like, what? That's, why would I do that? There's no way I'm going to do that. But those same people would come to your home for a dinner and a glass of wine and a good conversation about whatever comes up, especially if they feel like they're not a program, but you love them, love them. Where the church, in my estimation, has lost credibility with the culture because of our ridiculous power grabs, our misalignment, in my opinion, with political whichever left or right side, do you want to know where those issues can be healed? In the home, around a good dinner and a glass of wine. Or grape juice, if you don't drink wine. You know, Matt highlighted last week that it's interesting with our community groups. This is where people are being invited to, actually. I mean, if you're new visiting here this morning, God bless you and welcome you. And this is, please, please, please continue to come back. But it's so interesting. We're seeing within our community groups, there are a lot of people in our community groups that don't come to Sunday mornings. They feel comfortable coming into a smaller group where they can talk and be known a little bit, have some food. And the reality is every person right now in our society is starved for friendship and face-to-face -face contact. The fields are ripe for harvest. Just this last week, I had lunch with a young guy in our church, and he's, he's kind of starting to chomp. He's got the bug a little bit. He's starting to chomp at the bit like towards pastoral ministry. I think, I think I'm ready to start. I want to pursue this. I want to go for this. And when I asked him, you know, what do you envision pastoring as? I was expecting him to say, well, you know, church planting and Sunday mornings and tents and PAs and microphones and everything. And instead what he said is, well, I just see myself sitting in somebody's house, you know, teaching them about the Bible or doing counseling in a marriage or there's like a small group of people and we're, we're learning the Bible together and I'm there to help shepherd them. 
The Sunday morning thing didn't even enter in his mind. That wasn't even part of his vision of pastoring. And here's the point that I want to make. I do believe this next generation of leaders, I think you kids, not to be too fatherly, but I think you guys get it. I think you get it. I think you see that it's these small, tight-knit communities of humans where heaven is breaking in. There is this sea change occurring in this cultural moment within the Christian communities where Sunday mornings used to be just so important. Everything was about the event and a charismatic speaker and amazing music. All of those things are amazing if you have them. We have the music, the charismatic speaker, man, whatever. We do have the PA. We've got all that stuff. But that doesn't even matter because what we are learning and what we're seeing God do in the spirit is that the church life, the pastoring and the mission, it occurs within these communities. This is where other humans are brought in to actually be loved and not just talked to, but actually be loved and listened to and heard. Home is where heaven can break in, our homes. And yes, it requires sacrifice. Yes, it requires our time. Yes, it requires intentionality. And that's why Jesus died. Do we love? Do we love as he loves us? And then finally, number three, I'm so excited about this. Justice is the means. Intentionality is the key. Hospitality is the bridge. And justice is the means by which we little mobile temples of God's presence actually do something concretely good in the world. If we are distinguished by God's presence, it's because God's people from the tabernacle presence, they were to go out and do what the Hebrews, this is a Hebrew term throughout the Hebrew Bible. They were to go and do mishpat and sedekah. You guys want to say that with me? Mishpat and sedekah. Mishpat and sedekah. Those terms are repeated over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. And literally translated, God's people, they were to go to the temple, be cleansed, be in God's presence, and then go actually do what God's presence wanted to do in the world, which was mishpat, sedekah. Do rightness, righteousness, and do justice. Go do concrete things that change the world. Four primary people groups are mentioned throughout the Old Testament in reference to mishpat and sedekah. Do righteousness, do justice to these four groups. Orphans, widows, the strangers. Strangers would be like immigrants, or strangers would be anyone without relational capital in the community of God's people. The stranger would be somebody who didn't understand what was going on within Jewish culture and had to be brought in and had to be taught. Sounds very much like modern church day stuff, bringing people to church. And the poor. God's people were to go out and concretely disadvantage themselves for these disadvantaged groups as an act of bringing God's presence and healing to them. And that is what we are called to. And so this summer, man, I'm excited about this. It's interesting because I was really wrestling with this. The same things that we all wrestle with. Do we have time? We're a church plant. Do we have enough volunteers? And both my wife and I just finally reached a point where it was like, we're either going to get concrete about this stuff or we not. This, this summer, we're going to concretely going, we're going to go after Mishpat and Seneca and doing justice. Each year, more than 400,000 children enter into the foster care in the United States. And many of those kids, of course, are suffering horrendous abuse and neglect. Now, foster parents, thankfully, have continued to step in, providing safety and support, but so many of these children have been failed at home. Now, at the end of 2020, the New York Times published an article with the headline saying, foster care was always tough, but COVID-19 made it tougher. We don't have data from 2020's foster care system, but there's a strong likelihood that because of unemployment and illness and death caused by the pandemic, that put even more pressure on struggling families. And so that may in turn have ramped up the abuse within many of these homes. 
So here's what we're doing concretely. Mishpat, tzedakah, mobile temples of God's presence. And I love that we're doing this with the church, not just us. We're going to join up with our, with our sending church, Park Hill. We're also joining up with Light Church and Benjing Horning and the guys up in Encinitas. Benji is one of the elders on my board. He oversees this church. We're also going to yoke up with, with um, Wes and the guys at Captivate. So we're joining three other churches, and we're going to partner with this ministry called Royal Family Kids. Royal Family Kids is a national Christian network of camps and mentoring clubs designed to serve children of abuse and abandonment and neglect. And they offer these camps, five-day camps, where foster children literally come to get a second chance at childhood. They create these camps that, you know, these once-in-a-lifetime moments where kids can begin to rebuild healthy relationships with trusted adults through games and outdoor activities and chapel and mealtimes. It's real mishpat. It's real sedekah. It's real justice. It's real righteousness for these really hurting humans. So here's how you guys can help as we approach this summer. We need somebody to step up and be the liaison between neighbors, the ambassador, you know, taking a seat at the table as one of the leaders or the leader, the liaison between our church, the other churches, and this group. And so this will be represented. All four churches will have a particular leader, the, the like point person. I really would ask you to pray. Could I do that this summer? Could I be the liaison? Could I be the one that heads this up? Number two, as we approach July and June, June and July, we're looking for five volunteers who would like to serve at the camp. The camp is July 5th through July 9th. Five volunteers, July 5th through July 9th. There's going to be a two-day training. They take this very seriously. There's an extensive training in June, and so that would be part of the time requirements. And then lastly, we're going to be giving as a church specifically to this. Um, we'll have handouts for you in the coming weeks as we keep talking about this with a QR code on it. None of the money is being funneled through Neighbors, Captivate, Light, or Park Hill. All the money is being funneled through a very specific uh, charity that goes directly to Royal Family Kids Camps, okay? And so you guys can get all the research on that. We'll get the QR code for you in the next couple weeks. Oh. We're going to come to communion now. And communion is... Communion is the time where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And kids, at this point, parents, you guys can go get your kids if you'd like to bring them back for worship here in this time. But as we come to communion this morning, I just want to reiterate for you guys. What we perceive to be so impossible through just the most tiny moments, the tiniest moments this afternoon of intentionality, with a little bit of hospitality in our hearts, and with justice driving us, if we will live that way, God will work through it. And here's what I want to take us into communion with. All of this has at its epicenter actually talking about Jesus. I wanted to take us into communion by basically saying, <laughs> we can have intentionality, we can practice hospitality, we can actually do justice. Our culture is really good at trying to do Jesus' things, but without Jesus. And it doesn't work. But we can do all the Jesus-y things with the intent of saying Jesus' name out loud, calling people to trust Jesus, to actually talk about him, to actually be so enthralled with him and overflowing with him that as we're doing justice, as we're being intentional, when our baristas are like, man, why are you, why, how come you always are so, I'm, Jesus, 
and we're unchecked in our awkwardness about it. (laughs) Say his name. Foster the children in his name. Be hospitable in his name. Talk about Jesus. And as he commanded us, friends, you and I have the opportunity to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to do all that Jesus commanded. And his presence, he promised. His presence, his presence is with us and his presence is in us. Father, as we come to sing and partake of communion this morning, just meet with us now. Send us, do with us what we can't do ourselves. Make us one with you. Quicken and awaken our hearts. Transform us. Please use us, Lord. Please use us. In Jesus' name.